Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Mass in All Access podcast. Paul Mancano and Bobby Blanco here with you as always. And of course, the Mass in All Access podcast is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. We've got a lot to talk about. Less than two weeks until pitchers and catchers report down in Sarasota, Florida. 13 days. Time has been flying. So baseball is just around the corner. And of course, the Orioles... Made in addition, Wade LeBlanc signing a minor league deal yesterday. So we'll talk on that, how he could fit potentially into that rotation, what his role will be with the Orioles. And then we're just a little bit more than five months away from the MLB draft. So we're going to talk about uh, the names that you're going to hear over the next few months. Could be the most important day of the Orioles season. Won't happen on the field, but it will uh, impact the Orioles' future quite a bit as they will make the second overall pick in that draft. So we'll get you ready for that. We're still a ways away, but obviously it's going to be important in just a few months. But first, Bobby, we should touch on the news that came down on Sunday, the tragic loss of Kobe Bryant. Obviously, this is not a basketball podcast. Mm -hmm. We both enjoy basketball, watching basketball, but the way that uh, Kobe Bryant uh, affected just about every, every sport, Everybody who watches sports, um, it, it it is a dominant topic for a reason because of the way that he really had an effect across the entire sports world. Yeah, it doesn't just affect uh, the NBA or Los Angeles or even the United States. It's a global fun. He was a global phenomenon, yeah. and um, he was a major figure in not just the sporting world, but in our culture and and people who you know watch sports or don't watch sports knew who he was, you know, and they somehow, he, it's incredible how many lives he touched. Um, not just via basketball, but in other ways. Um, he won an Oscar, he, you know, he, he was just a transcendent figure in our time. And I know Paul, like you mentioned, like, we're both basketball fans. I mean, I'm 27, you're 25. I mean, Kobe was the NBA for us growing up. We were too young to remember, uh, Michael Jordan in his heyday with the bulls. And so Kobe was our Michael Jordan, and he was the best player I've ever seen play basketball. I mean, I think LeBron is probably the best athlete overall I've ever seen, but Kobe is probably the best basketball player I'll ever see. Um, and and just the way it all went down, so tragic. 41 years old, not even four years removed from retiring from the NBA. I mean, I've, we wa- I watched uh, his final game on ESPN the other night, which is just heart-wrenching. Losing a 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, who had her entire life ahead of her. She was going to be a star, too, in the basketball world. Leaving behind three other daughters and a wife. Um, and then also, don't forget, the seven other people on that helicopter. It was just a, it was just really a, a horrible, horrible day. Sunday was just, you know, it was supposed to be a, a good day. PGA Tour wrapping up, Grammys at night, Pro Bowl. And then it just turned into a, just kind of a whole disaster. It was, it was a huge, huge bummer felt by all across the world. And... We, it was also especially strange because the whole sports world had just been talking about Kobe yeah. the night oh, before man. because LeBron had just passed him the all-time rankings for career points. And that was a major moment in, in a game that I believe was nationally broadcast. And 
it was, of course, that was a major story, and it was surreal to see then the next morning um, that news break. I mean, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. close to Lower Marion, um, and I can tell you, obviously, not a whole lot of Lakers fans in that area, but there were a ton of Kobe fans yeah, because sure. there were so many people that watched him or followed him. He won the state championship with Lower Marion um, his senior year of high school before he got drafted 13th overall by the, um, I think he was traded to the Lakers. Yeah, he drafted by the uh, the Hornets. Hornets. And, you know, he, he made so many fans along the way. And every time, you know, I would hear stories about every time he came back and played the Sixers in Philly, he would always get a cheesesteak at this one place that was close to St. Joe's University and knew the owner. And, you know, everybody knew he was going to that spot. Um, hear stories about how he would have Philly soft pretzels laid out for him. You know, they had his number 33 at, uh, at Lower Marion um, on the court yesterday at the Sixers game. It, it, it's crazy to think that that's, you know, he, he grew up in that area, but he, he only was there until he was 17. You know, yeah. he only spent a short amount of time there and far from his most impactful years in the basketball world. But every place that he touched, he left a little bit of himself. Um, and it, it, it just felt tragic, especially because, you know, he had, he was just 41. He, he had so much more to do, so much more to give, not just to the basketball world, maybe to women's basketball. Uh, he would have been such a great ambassador for, I mean, he was Truly. a great ambassador yeah. for women's basketball. And of course his daughter maybe had, you know, she of course had aspirations to play at that level, at the WNBA level. And, and there was so much left for him to do. And, um, for it to happen this early was just you know, any loss is especially painful, but for it to happen this early in his life, I think was was gut wrenching. In a tragic way, like a helicopter crash, like helicopters, planes, boats. Oh, I mean, it's those things take off and land a million times a day, and I mean, it's just a once in a billion shot that that's the one that goes down. Um, the one time, and you've heard stories about you know Kobe had that helicopter because he lived an hour south of L.A. and um, it was easier for him to transport and he also had it to spend more time with his family because that's how him and his family would get around um, and to get to Gigi's basketball game and stuff. And it, the whole thing was really eerie too. The um, You mentioned LeBron passing Kobe in the all-time scoring list the night before as a Laker in Kobe's U.S. hometown. Of course, he grew up mostly in Italy overseas with his dad playing. Um, but, and then the night before and him and LeBron – talking on the phone less than 12 hours before it all happened. Um, and then the Lakers coming back, supposed to play their next game against the other L.A. team. The Clippers, obviously, has been since postponed um, out of respect. So, uh, it's just the whole thing. All, it was very eerie. And, you know, also, for, for it was kind of creepy, too, that Kobe has been in, like, mainstream media over the past few weeks and months because of his appearances on the Jimmy Kimmel show. And um, that uh, we're going to see that clip of him and Gigi on the sideline talking basketball forever. And it's going to be heart-wrenching every single time now. But, I mean, that was becoming a meme, and now we're making it as, like, a in-memoriam type thing. Yeah. Um, and that we'll always think of the two of them and the seven other people on the helicopter and the Bryant family and all those friends and family of those lost in that, in this horrible, horrible accident um, forever. It was just, yeah, it was, it was a really tough day. I even had a tough day the day after. Cause again, Kobe meant so much to, to me as a sports fan growing up and a basketball fan. Um, and like you said, what he, he could have been, he was a huge ambassador for women's sports. He was coaching his daughter's team. 
Um, he was a huge ambassador for basketball outside the U.S. Uh, of course, the Redeem team in 08 and the Olympics in Beijing. He was like the biggest superstar in China um, for what he's done over there. Um, it's just it's just awful. We lost a great, not only great basketball person, but a basketball player, but a, a great person who was bec- uh, just starting the second half of his life. Yeah, and um, exactly. it's just, it's, it's tragic. And yeah, I mean, you know, when somebody who has a, a great, fulfilled life and you know reaches the end of their life and they pass it's there's a lot of feelings of memoriam and and what they did and and reflecting on that but I think it was difficult for the first 24 48 hours to you know even even take into summation everything that he accomplished because it felt like it was unfinished. Yeah, and it was so sudden too. I mean, yeah. so you can't plan for that. I've I had people asking me, it's like you know you're in the media. How do you how do you cover that? You don't. I mean, you, you, there's no book. There's no script on no. how you cover this stuff. I think I, I give kudos to all the major outlets, you know, on TV. Uh, ESPN, TNT did a really good job last night. Um, all the pu- publications, The Athletic, ESPN.com, other magazines, they did such a good job of – because there is no way to do – there's no right way to go about it. There's definitely some wrong ways to go about it, but there's no right way to go about it. And I think everyone handled it very well. It was very touching. It, it was tough, you know, watching the TNT thing all of a sudden. You see, you know, Shaq. six grown men, guys who were like, yeah, Shaq, you know, he's Superman. Um, and, and, and Derek Fisher and Dwayne Wade, guys who you think were, we idolize, and they're bawling their eyes out of it. And it's just, it's just, just horrific. It's, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, really awful. Um, and, you know, certainly it's, it's something that uh, will be on our minds for the coming weeks, for the coming months, and, uh, and years. I yeah. mean, really um, tragic. But because of the way that he was able to affect sports, able to affect the public consciousness, we had to talk about it. You know, yeah. it's just you, you talk about it with everybody. Even people that don't know sports, that don't watch basketball, they knew who Kobe Bryant was. Yeah. And they, you know, they, that news affected them. He um, was a great father, husband, activist. Yeah. Um, he, he did. He was so much more than a basketball player. He really was. Um, all right. Well, we will flip the script as difficult as that is to talk about some baseball. The Orioles, as mentioned earlier, made an addition signing left-handed pitcher Wade LeBlanc yesterday. We've talked ad nauseum over the past couple weeks and months of this offseason about how the Orioles rotation is very much unfulfilled. A lot of empty spots in that rotation. You can potentially fit Alex Cobb into that rotation if he's healthy. You, of course, have John Means. Asher Wojciechowski would be a de facto starter just based on the lack of names there. Then beyond that, not a whole lot. You have Michael Rucker, who's that uh, Rule 5 pick, but not too many options in that starting rotation. And now the Orioles get a guy who potentially, 35 years old, has plenty of starting experience and could slot into that rotation uh, within the first week of the season. Yeah, this is a guy, I mean, this is, like you said, a top of their Orioles priority list for most of the offseason. And this is also the time of year, like we talked about at the top of the show, less than two weeks from spring training, pitchers and catchers reporting. If you're looking for pitching help, this is the time of year you're going to get a lot of these minor league signings with invitation to spring major league spring training. Some journeyman guys who are looking for their next job, next opportunity. And, and that's Wade LeBlanc in the nutshell. Journeyman, he's been pitching since 08. Um multiple teams hasn't really stuck around too much in, in one team since his first handful of years with the Padres. Um, yeah. And, and the, the, I think it's interesting too, because he kind of fits two roles. You mentioned that he's, he's going to be fighting for a rotation spot, but he's also been used as a reliever as of later, as of late in his career um, more recently. But you know, I think his, 
like games appearances and versus starts is like split. Like oh, they're almost half starts, half one fourteen uh, starts, one hundred and twenty games out of the bullpen. So it's a guy that you're bringing in that um, cheap, obviously minor league deal. Give him a shot for the remaining two, possibly three open rotation spots. Um, and see what he can do. And if worst case scenario, he becomes a long reliever for you. Because again, right. we we're, we talked about how much uh, Michael Elias has been focusing on trying to get rotation help, but they also need bullpen help. I mean, yeah. they have plenty they just of, need pitchers. Right, <laughs> right. They have plenty of. They're they're not short in bullpen arms, but talented arms, yeah. guys that they can use periodically throughout the season and, and on a consistent basis. They eat up innings. This is a guy that can fit that mold. And and um, I think you touched on it um, in, in our notes here that he actually found a lot of success uh, following an opener yeah. in the past couple of seasons. Yeah, I think that that number of 120 games as a reliever can be a little bit deceiving, especially last year because most of his appearances out of the bullpen came in the first or second inning mm-hmm. um, because he would come in after, you know, some reliever took the first inning for Seattle. Again, Seattle is is a team that is in a very similar situation to the Orioles, so they were trying out some things, trying to fit some relievers into that opener spot and then putting a full-time starter who could eat up some innings right after that. So the, the interesting thing will be, what you know, will the Orioles try a similar path with Wade LeBlanc? We heard at the beginning of last season they did a little bit of lip service to talk about, you know, we could do an opener, maybe that works for us. They never, they experimented with it very briefly, but they didn't really dive all the way in on that experiment. Will like they, they were more open to it and use a little more in the second half of the yeah, season. I think so. I think they wanted to see what they had mostly right. in the first half. So the question is, you know, does Brandon Hyde want to start using LeBlanc in that role? Because he showed some success. He was, he was much better last year, especially out of that coming out of the first or second inning out of the bullpen as he as opposed to coming out as a starter in 2019 he had a 6.99 ERA in the first 6 starts of the season that was when he was initially just used as a starter so they tried him with that opener and he had a 4.57 ERA out of the bullpen not great but compared to an 8.35 ERA as a pure starter so clearly they found some success with that I don't know who they could potentially use as an opener. Um, there are no shortage of names, of course, that you can throw out there, mm-hmm. but it's certainly a, an idea. It, he's going to eat up innings no matter what. They're going to use a, a lot of him. The question is, what kind of role is he going to fill? Right, and it, the other question, too, is like we talked about on this podcast, whether on this Orioles side or on the other national side, about like re- pitchers needing consistency and and defined roles are my, my starter or my reliever well nowadays especially over the past couple of years see like the rays and how they use pitchers that line is being blurred a lot more than it ever has before and teams are asking pitchers to do more than just you're a straight on starter or you're a straight on reliever and the leblanc kind of fits that little gray area where he's he's done both has found some success not great success but some success on on each side um he's used to doing both so whatever, and he's also, you know, the perfect situation where he's 35 years old, he's looking for a job. Um, the Orioles are a perfect team where he could stick and find innings and and pitch a bunch, and he'll mold his whatever he need, his his game to whatever the Orioles need him to be. Yeah. If that turns out to be a starter, you know, you're the fourth starter, the fifth starter in our rotation, okay, fine. I'm taking the ball every five days. If you know, we decided to go through the opener route and we're going to place you behind. We're going to stick out this young reliever that we have that throws heat for the first inning. And then you're going to take two through maybe five, maybe six innings. All right. 
that that's your role. Or we're going to completely scratch that, and you're yeah, you're going to be our long man out of the pen. You're going to be like our guy because John Means, whatever reason, is 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 great through six, but then we need a guy covering seven, eight into the ninth or yeah. or shorter or emergency start type situation. So he fills a lot of different roles, and uh, I think it's a good situation for him where he could mold however he wants to to what the Orioles need. Yeah, and I think it's a a situation where one could help the other. Right. You know, um, if you do go with an opener, I honestly think that might create some opportunities for some of these relievers, mm-hmm. um, especially some of the younger guys that we saw struggle. Obviously, pretty much nobody besides maybe Michael Gibbons had an average or above average season out of the bullpen. We saw a lot of guys struggle. I think of a guy like Paul Fry, who had a, a great 2018, showed a lot of promise in his rookie season, and then last year, Start out the first half of the season pretty good, then struggled down the stretch. And I think part of it is these guys were thrown into some difficult situations. So mm-hmm. many of these guys had to get multiple innings. So many of these guys had to get out of bases loaded jams, had to get out of um, you know situations, and that might have hurt them. That, that might have just created a, a more difficult opportunity for them. But if you think about Paul Fry last year, just for, to use as an example – had a 236 batting average against in his first 25 pitching pitches of an outing. But if he threw 26 to 50, that leapt up to 375. No. So obviously, if he limits the number, you know, he, they don't want him out there for any more than one inning, ideally. And that's a lot of relievers, just because teams, you know, see their stuff after, you know, they, they have several good pitches, but teams get their the repertoire, they see what they have, and then they start hitting them. So if you have a guy like Paul Fry or somebody else, as an opener, just get through the first inning, just get through a clean first inning, and then you have a guy like Wade LeBlanc that can come in and do two, three, four, five, maybe six, can get you know four or five innings after that. That could help the confidence, it could help the numbers of a young guy who's a reliever, and can also help your team win some ball games potentially. Yeah, and I think that also helps where you know the we talked about how, how many young arms they have. Not just on the forty man, but look look down in the in the minor leagues and the farm system that are, we're probably going to see at some point this season. These guys are these young guys are still figuring out ways to get guys out at the major league level. You know they're they're so young and have only been have only touched them. Look, I mean, think about Hunter Harvey. Like, yes, he was great after making his debut. We saw a lot of good stuff out of him, but it was a very limited action. We're going to see maybe a full season of him. Is he? He might be a different talent. I mean, obviously a top draft pick from years past, but is he going to be one of those guys that can consistently – I mean, he's yeah. still figuring out how to get guys out at this level. LeBlanc, again, 35, has been there, done that. He can not only eat up those innings, but also be kind of the guys like, hey, because he's now making his living because, I mean, he doesn't have the heat anymore. We have – Fangraphs has him clocked in uh, fastball average at 86 miles per hour. He's not going to blow anybody away. So he's one of those guys that are now changing the way he approaches pitching to get guys out, while these young guys are probably relying heater, 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 maybe an off-speed pitch here or there working because they're still working on it, tweaking it. So he's going to help allow – take some pressure off these young guys, but also I think you – it's like a tricky balance because he is going to take pressure off by eating some innings, whether that's a starter or an opener or whatever, or following an opener, whatever, long man, whatever it may be. But also, you know, if they go the route of an opener into a long man, that's five to six innings that aren't being eaten by a starter. They're going to be eaten by a young guy coming out of the pen. 
So it's it's kind of tricky. It's a, it's a funny little balance of where there's going to be opportunity there, but it's also going to be kind of limited because LeBlanc is going to take these extra innings off their workload. Yeah, and and I think partly the idea with that is if they do go with an opener or even not, you know, LeBlanc, as you mentioned, 86 miles an hour. He has never had a blistering fastball, and especially at 35, it's not going to be especially high. Right. It's going to be interesting to see how much he uses it because he barely used it last year, 28.1% of the time, which was a career low. So he's clearly relying on more his off-speed. But no matter what, those hitters are going to see 86 miles an hour at the most. What if you had a guy like a Miguel Castro who can throw 97 to as an opener to start a game, he blows through the first inning, maybe gets a couple strikeouts, and then hitters then in the second inning have to adjust to a guy who can only top 86 miles an hour. Yeah. You know, that might throw, I think that's part of the idea, is that might throw um, opposing hitters for a loop there. Yeah, it's kind of like, all right, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, it's going, sending that lineup through a roller coaster of different pitches and velocities yeah. that you're going to see. Speaking of different pitches, they also, you know, signed the, this, um, uh, what's his name? Mickey Janis, who throws a knuckleball. So that's yeah, another knuckleballer. Uh, I mean, he's huge. only on a minor league deal. He didn't have an invitation to major league spring training, but you know, he could pop up to uh, Sarasota every one. I mean, not Sarasota. He's at Twins Lake Park, but to the complex every once in a while. Maybe that throws in a quote unquote knuckleball. <laughs> yeah. So into the mix of the same idea. Um, but you also mentioned like eating up these innings for for these young guys. At the same time, you you bring up a Miguel Castro. You know, it's we're also getting to a point where some of these guys need to you know shut up and, and, and pitch, you know? It's like enough making excuses where, oh, he's a young guy, he's a young guy. Either you have it or you don't at some point. You know, you talk about Paul Fry, he's only been here for a handful of seasons, has a limited number of uh, major league experience, but a guy like Castro, you know, this is a guy, LeBlanc, that could fill that Castro role, I mean, of that long reliever. Uh, he doesn't have the firepower that uh, Castro has, but if he can figure out a way to get guys out in an unconventional way, other than just throwing fastballs, then you know Brandon Hyde's gonna be more likely to turn to him than Castro if he, if he starts struggling. Yeah, exactly. And and how many times did it was Brandon Hyde? Did he have his hands tied just because he could not find enough people right. to throw in a game? He yeah. could not get out of innings um, late in games. So That's having, why I think it's gonna be interesting. It's gonna open up innings for young guys too. And, and you know, you talked about. You, some guys are put in tough situations. Well, I mean, the team is not great. You're going to be tough situations are going to come more often than not. So take that with a grain of salt. But at the same time, it, there might be some more innings for young guys where they're being Brandon Hines is like, yeah, we we have no other choice. We have to right. throw him in and see what we have. Yeah, and I think he, I think a, a guy like Wade LeBlanc has a little bit of a, um, I guess of a, a a lower or a higher floor than maybe somebody like a Dan Straley who barely lasted with the Orioles. True. I think he's just a slightly, you know, the fact that he has been fairly durable over his career. The, um, I know he's 35, but um, just looking to eat innings, that's pretty much the, <laughs> the baseline for a, a deal like this. And, you know, not a major league deal. So only a minor league deal, it gets $800,000, according to Rockabaco, I believe, if he makes uh, the roster. So, you know, he, he they clearly did not risk a whole lot to get this guy. No, and, and durable too. He um looks like he signed um he, he pitched in the 2015 season overseas, yeah. but other than that, he's pitched in the major leagues every season since 2008. Right. So, I mean, some experience and durable at the major league level. Yeah. So Wade LeBlanc added to the Orioles pitching roster potentially, another guy that we will see down in spring training. We are just a little bit more than five months away from the MLB drafted. Is it the second week of June? Um, it is 
actually, you know, last year I, I looked at it. Both teams had off on the first night of the draft. Yeah, which not is the huge case. for us. Not the case this year. Great. I believe the first night of the draft, there's an Orioles home game Ooh. here. So that's going to be interesting uh, and see what kind of coverage we're going to have. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you at this point, but we are five months away. So we've got plenty of time to, to plan that one. Just sneak preview. We did throw a cable out the window and across Utah Street. So I don't know if that's allowed to do with a crowd here, but yeah. that's that's our Base. That's if, our that's our floor. If you're walking down Utah Street on that on that Thursday, June 10th, and you see a cable coming from the <laughs> or air, if you see Mira Paul hanging out the window, yeah, definitely don't grab it and pull it. No, no, definitely, no, 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 definitely no. don't do that. The but, professionals handle that. Yeah, I'm sure we're professionals. Um, but there are three guys at this point that pretty much whatever mock draft you look at, they are the top three guys at this point. The order of those three guys is TBD. We still, yeah. uh, you know, I've seen some where we've We've had one guy at the top, one guy third, but pretty much these three guys are Austin Martin, not the car, uh, Emerson Hancock, and Spencer Torkelson, which, by the way, three of the best names that I've ever heard. Strong names. Really strong. Emerson Hancock. Basically a fancy car. Emerson Hancock, which sounds like, you know, he was the Colonel Sanders' right-hand man. Mm -hmm. Just like... Yeah, sounds like he was in a duel years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And like the Revolutionary War. Yeah. And Spencer Torkelson. 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 Like, mm-hmm. I've heard tank for torque. Tank for torque. I like that. Um, and you know that if spent, if Emerson Hancock gets drafted by the Orioles and he signs his deal, we're going to see some... Uh, going to need his John Hancock. John Hancock. Right Emerson Hancock right there. Yeah. So these three guys we're going to touch sure, on very... Never get older that. Yep. Very briefly because they still have some baseball to play and we still have yet to see, you know, how their 2020 seasons are going to go and how that will impact their draft stock. But let's start... With Austin Martin, not Aston Martin. Austin Martin. He's a junior from Vanderbilt. He is a third baseman. He is six foot, 170 pounds. He bats from the right side of the plate. And I like him a whole lot. Uh, he, in the 58 games last year for Vanderbilt, hit 407, 10 homers. So just a little bit of pop, 45 RBIs. He had more walks than he did strikeouts. He had 19 doubles, three triples. He's a great base runner. He honestly, I've watched just a little bit of him, and I'm no scout, mm-hmm. but at least his swing kind of reminds me just a little bit of Adley Rutschman. I know Adley is a, a switch hitter, but Martin from the right side of the plate has such a short, compact swing. He gets to the ball quickly, nothing too fancy, but he does have a little bit of pop. I, I like a lot of what I've seen from this kid. Yeah, and I, I love the fact that, and it's hard to do too, because, well, I don't know, maybe not. But it's it's hard to do at any level, I think, in baseball to walk more than you strike out. I mean, that is pretty impressive. That's a patient hitter. That's a guy who knows what he's looking for, has a calm presence at the plate. Um, you mentioned short, compact swing. He, he trusts that swing. He knows what he's going to do with it. The average is through the roof, but we see that a lot in college. Um, and and the on-base ability. He's, he's quick. He steals bases. I believe he has 40 career stolen bases already um, just through two seasons. Um, and obviously the 2020 season's underway. So, yeah, he's 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 a pretty close to a, a five-tool guy, speed, power. I haven't seen too much of his defensive metrics, but his, if, if he's playing third base or shortstop, I can't imagine he's that bad for Vanderbilt. Yeah, he's uh, was mostly used at third base last year, doesn't quite know exactly where he's going to slot for the majority of this season. Can play short. I've seen he can play all over the diamond, too. Yeah. The uh, coach at Vanderbilt also suggested, manager rather, that he can play center field, potentially. He mm-hmm. has the speed. 
He had a bunch of arm injuries in high school, so the only questions would be with his arm strength. Um, but, you know, from, from what we've heard, solid defender at third base and obviously a position that uh, is is of importance in terms of team fielding. Yeah, yeah, and on the Vanderbilt website, he's listed as a utility position. Right. So it's like he can play anywhere you want, um, and you have that. He, he is, I think, listed as the best pure hitter in this draft um, and with Tolkerson right behind him as a, the best power hitter. We'll get to him in a second. But if you're just getting – I mean, he is just your ideal third base slash shortstop infielder uh, prototype. You know, if you're going to build a player to start MLB The Show, this is probably your starting point right yeah. here. And he's just kind of a guy that hits all – checks all the boxes. Yeah, and especially for the Orioles, obviously. They have needs all over the diamond, but to get a, a cornerstone – you know, on the left side of the infield would be of massive importance, I think, going forward. Yeah, and especially since, you know, you drafted a guy like Ryan Mountcastle and then tried to put him at third base, and that never really turned out. I mean, they haven't had a solid, you know, third base slash shortstop prospect since Manny Machado. Right, So exactly. that's your next Manny Machado, ideally. Yeah. And I mentioned Adley Rutschman. The comparisons go even deeper than just his swing. National champion. They won the national championship. As Vanderbilt does. He was drafted in the fifth round by the Dodgers at a high school, which is pretty high for a high schooler to go. But he chose to honor his commitment to Vanderbilt. And there was a quote from him saying, "Really loved. he really loves team baseball. I just wanted to play in that team atmosphere for a few more years. So he... He didn't. He said, you know, going to to minor league camp would be his job. You know, being a minor leaguer, and he wanted to be on a team where he could just go out and play, yeah, um, and not have to worry about it being his job every day. Loves the team atmosphere. He seems kind of in that mold of a, a team first guy, an extremely competitive guy, and a guy that you know you could potentially build a team around just based on his personality and character. Yeah, you would want him paired with Ali Brutschman being like the two faces of the rebuild. Like they're two. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this too last year with our draft coverage about how Adley is also just like he's the captain, you know. And that comes a lot with catchers obviously. They take a lot of leadership on on baseball squads, but you know, just the guy that everyone turns to, enjoys the clubhouse, enjoys the game, is a student of the game, um really wants to just not only improve himself but the team that he's on. Uh, it's an impressive factor, and we know from the time talking to Michael Elias last year about the draft, that's something that they consider when, when drafting players, that, that character aspect, especially with a rebuild like this. Are you a leader? Are you going to take control of this and, and become you know the guy, a face of the franchise for years to come? Yeah. All right, Austin Martin, one of the first names on the list. Second name on the list we're going to talk about, right-handed pitcher Emerson Hancock. He's a junior from Georgia. Big dude, 6'4", 213 pounds. He's a righty. In 2019, 14 starts, went 8-3 and three with a 1.99 ERA, pitched over 90 innings, 97 strikeouts compared to 18 walks, and a minuscule .84 whip, which was third in the country. It allowed just allowed zero or one run in nine of his 14 starts. Um, apparently, he has the tools. He's got a blistering fastball from what we've heard. Um, and he's got some other off-speed to work there as well. So, Emerson Hancock, if the Orioles do want to add to their pitching, and Mike Elias has had, you know, almost all of his uh, off-season moves, especially this off-season, have been geared toward pitching. We know that they have some a couple guys in the system. 
But Emerson Hancock is an interesting guy if they want to draft him at number two. Yeah, he is, and he is probably the best power pitcher in this draft. Like you mentioned, the size. He, I mean, he has the size. He's built like how you would build a power pitcher. I mean, he six four, two over two hundred pounds, can throw the, you know, the the threat off the, off the ball. Um, and he's doing this in the SEC, which is like the best college baseball conference in the country. So he's not going against, you know, mediocre hitters day in and day out. No, he's going against the best of the best. We just talked about one of the best players in Vanderbilt. Um, he's doing this at Georgia against you know, some of the best teams in the country. You think about programs like LSU and Florida he has to go up against every year. Auburn has a great baseball program too. So you know, it's, he's not going against slouches, and he is putting them down. To have an 8-4 whip in 14 starts, most coming in the SEC, is insane. To have almost 100 strikeouts and less than 20 walks is insane. So it, it's obviously jumping from college to the pro level at any level is a huge leap, but, I mean, he has the numbers to back it up in a tough conference. I mean, I've, I've heard pro, uh, scouts basically call the SEC like, if there's high A ball, low A ball, SEC is like low, low A ball. Like it's basically minor league baseball, how good they players are. So the fact that he's got an ERA under two as well um, in just his sophomore season is, is pretty impressive. I think one thing to look at and scouts will certainly be looking at is were those numbers just a little bit fluky considering he really struggled as a freshman? Obviously, a freshman in the in the SEC is not going to do great, but he had a 5.10 ERA. So they will probably look to see if he can just repeat that success that he had as a sophomore certainly has the tools to do so. He's got the size of a of a major leaguer potentially. So Emerson Hancock is another name on that list. All right, a third junior, Spencer Torkelson, a first baseman from Arizona State. This guy is interesting because first baseman you don't often think is going to be a first overall or a second overall or even third overall pick, um, just because it is a position that is not valued in today's game he's 6'1 220 pounds he's a righty but an incredible power hitter hit 351 had a 446 on base percentage 707 slugging 23 homers 66 rbis in 57 games 41 walks compared to 45 strikeouts so he walks a ton as well a pure power hitter and I think that's you know his power is so overpowering that it is the reason that he is in this conversation because his position doesn't get him there. It's not like he's a great, you know, he is a solid defender of first base, but he is a first baseman, but his power is is just, it's impossible to ignore. Yeah, I'm watching some some B-roll from, I guess, workouts with uh, Team USA, um, I guess, junior camp, but he is a big boy. I mean, you can see where the power comes from. It's all lower level. Uh, he's got, obviously, big shoulders and arm. I mean, he is the you know, DH first baseman power hitter going to hit 40 home runs type type build. And he, he's already done that. I mean, he is, I think he broke Barry Bonds's Arizona state home run record as a freshman with 25 in 2018. I mean, that's a pretty impressive. That's, that's not a easy thing to do as a freshman hitting 25 home runs. So yeah, he's got all the power tools that you would look for. It is unconventional. Think about drafting a first baseman and a top three pick um, like this, but he's, if there's ever a guy that could probably fill that role. Everyone's saying it's him. You know, he's at this mock draft by uh, uh, Jim Callis on MLB.com has the Orioles taking him number two overall. This is back in December, but I mean, so it had, could have been updated since then, but they have him taking him number two overall, a first baseman that can just crush the ball, um, which is also interesting considering the fact that the Orioles, you know, have about three first basemen. Yeah. They're looking to look at, you know, Chris Davis, Trey Mancini and Ryan Mancos at some point this season. So, the fact that the Orioles pro- probably are set at that position for the near future, 
and they're going to draft one overall. It says a lot about the guy, the player that they would be taking. Yeah, and of course, with any draft pick in the MLB, it's difficult to look at you know like the current day roster and say what holes do we fill because these guys are exactly. years. They're yeah. still year even if they are college pitchers at a high level, they're still years away from making the major leagues. This might be a slight exception just because the Orioles not only have Trey Mancini, who might be around for the, the long term of the rebuild, we still don't quite know, but also Ryan Mountcastle, who also might be their long-term first baseman depending on what position he eventually settles into. Yeah. So, um, you know, that might just deter them just a little bit because you already have two guys potentially in that spot and even though it, you know, they could draft Torkelson and it could take him three years to reach the big leagues, um, it, it just could factor just a little bit into right. their decision making. There, yeah, and then on all on all accounts, whether to draft him, whether to extend Shane Mancini, whether to, yeah, know, what do you do with Chris Davis? You just let him go. What position to put Mountcastle what at? Puzzle, yeah, what do you just have him strictly be a DH? So yeah, it is an interesting thing. The MLB draft is just so interesting because like. Or it's the number two overall pick. There's been a lot of conversation. I live in D.C. A lot of conversation about the Redskins having the number two overall pick in the NFL draft. They're just completely different animals because everyone's talking about, do you trade back? Do you take Chase Young at number two? I mean, baseball, you take the best player available. And these are three pretty much, I mean, you can't really say with the fact, obviously, right now, but these are three of the best prospects you're going to get. The Orioles are in a great, I mean, we talked about last year how the Orioles, you should be... (laughs) Not losing on purpose, but trying to get the number one overall pick. But, I mean, you have, I think at the number two, you have the luxury of, all right, you have your best position player and your best pitcher available or, or on your board. Whichever the Tigers take, you take the other one. Yeah. So, it's it's really, I mean, baseball is such a different sport where you, you, ha- you can split it up in pitchers and position players. So, it's like you're still getting the best of whatever position you're going to get at number two. Right, and it's going to be interesting to see what order they go in. If there are any mystery candidates, of course, plenty of time before the draft that could sneak in. If I had to take my guess right now, though, and this is a way shot in the dark just based on the information that we have, I would guess a guy like Austin Martin, third baseman, potentially a shortstop, has ranged defensively, a 407 hitter that has shown the ability to potentially to to grow in terms of a, his power ability, I would guess he's going to be the first overall pick, Yeah, which would make a decision for Michael Elias with Spencer Torkelson and Emerson Hancock um, with the second overall pick. And if I had to take my guess based on what we've seen for Michael Elias, I would guess Emerson Hancock would be the second overall pick considering how important Michael Elias thinks that pitching is. But again, total guess. Yeah, that's total guess. And this this uh, mock draft by Jim Callis also points out the fact that Michael Elias was obviously involved in to four, two top picks uh, with the Astros mm-hmm. over the course of the years. They hit big on the position players. They didn't hit so big on the pitchers. Missed with the pitchers. So yeah. it would be interesting to see if that came down to, you know, if if the if the Tigers don't take Hancock and it comes comes down to him or Torkelson, you know, you don't have a great track record with pitchers, but you need pitchers. He's probably the best yeah. pitcher on this. You know, he would be the guy that you would probably pair along with, like. I mean, John Means is already here, but a Grayson Rodriguez or something like that to be part of this rotation down the line. Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky question. But, again, you have the luxury of taking the best of whichever position you want at number two, considering what to, whatever the Tigers don't take. And would you let your past experience affect you? You know, right. would you think, would that get in your head in terms of, you know, you, your job is to be analytical, but would it get into your head in terms of, well, we missed on Brady Aiken, we missed on some pitchers, maybe we should go with a position player. 
And they could also look to, we took Alex Bregman in the top three several years ago as a third baseman slash shortstop. That one worked out pretty well. Yeah. So, And the, also the thing about this draft, too, will be interesting to cover is that it's very deep and collegiate-level pitchers. Yeah. So if they want pitchers, they can still go get them later in the draft. Keep in mind, their second-round pick has been moved up because of the Astros being vacated their first-round pick. So that's one less player off the board before the Orioles pick again. Yeah. So they could, they're going to have their selection of pitchers. It's just a matter of do you want to spend that number two overall on the number, the best pitcher, or do you want to stack up later? Because it is a deep draft in terms of collegiate-level pitchers. Exciting stuff. Obviously, several months away, but there's plenty to talk about. And you can probably follow these guys along throughout the season. That's uh, Yeah, college baseball season underway. Yeah, and you get some nationally televised games. Obviously, three of these guys, Vanderbilt, Georgia, Arizona State, these are three top programs. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see them on national TV and potentially in the Collegiate World Series um, by season's end. So interesting three names as the Orioles get ready for the draft. Still several months away, but spring training is just around the corner, two weeks away. Follow us at Paul Mancano for me, at Bobby underscore Blanco on Twitter. Of course, the Mass and All Access podcast is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. We will be back in a week with our final podcast before spring training. We'll see you then.